All right, open your Bible to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. And so I've kind of titled this, uh, we're, as we work through the book of Genesis, I've kind of titled this uh, The Gospel in Genesis. Uh, last week we talked about the life of another. And today we're going to talk specifically, uh, the, the title of my message today really is a question, and the question is this, what marks your life? What marks your life? So I'm going to read to you Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to read the first 16 verses. So follow along with me. Genesis 4, beginning in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you, a fugitive and a vagabond. You shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Now, I want to read, um, I want to read a couple of other scriptures, actually three others to be exact, and then we're going to go back to Genesis 4. I want to read also Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. Hebrews 11, verse 4 says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. I want you to notice that the word gifts there is plural. Matthew, well, while we're in Hebrews, go, go over to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 24 says, To Jesus, the mediator 
of the new covenant to which, excuse me, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So we have a reference here back to Abel and the blood of Abel. One other reference is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23, verse 35. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters. I'm sorry, I'm reading the verse instead of the uh, chapter number. It's verse 35 in chapter 23. That's a good scripture too, though. I could have kept reading that, but verse 35. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel. Jesus calls Abel righteous to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Just a quick note here. That's really not, doesn't have anything to do with my sermon, but this is just a little part is free, okay? In the Jewish scripture, the order of the Jewish scriptures is Genesis, and the last book in the chronology is Second Chronicles. Ours is Genesis to Malachi. They have all the same books in the Old Testament scriptures. It's just that the, the Hebrew scriptures are put in a different order. So all the books are the same. So when Jesus makes this statement, on you may come all of the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. He is saying, in a sense, all the righteous, all the blood, on you may come all the righteous blood shed from Genesis to Second Chronicles. He, in, he there, in a sense, defines the Old Testament scriptures. Well, why is that important? Because Jesus only quoted from the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus never quoted from the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha, uh, in our Protestant Bibles, we don't have that. It's the, the books that chronicle, uh, or that were produced within the 400 years from the last prophet Malachi who prophesied before Jesus came to the coming of Christ. There were 400 years. The Jews call it the 400 years of silence. Those are the apocryphal books. Uh, and Jesus never quoted from those, but yet Jesus makes a reference from Genesis to Second Chronicles. In other words, he says everything in these Old Testament books. Just kind of a, an aside there. So he talks about the righteous blood that's recorded throughout the Old Testament. So it wasn't just that Abel and Zechariah were the only righteous bloodshed. It was all the righteous blood from the blood of Abel, the first human blood shed, to the blood of Zechariah, this prophet of God in the temple. Now let's go back to Genesis chapter 4. So this is our text, Genesis 4, 1 through 16. And I want to go through just a few of these verses and highlight some things before we get into the meat of our message. So first of all, I want you to see this in Genesis chapter 4, um, 
Well, let's just begin reading in one. It says that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And then verse 2 says, then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now, in the English language, that doesn't really seem like much, but what's interesting is in the Hebrew, the, the, the text in Hebrew and the way the Hebrew language is, it seems to indicate, based on how it is written and recorded, that Cain and Abel actually were twins. Because the way this is written and the way the Hebrew portrays it, you get the sense that she bore Cain and then she bore again, not after a period of time, but right there. So there are many who believe that this text communicates indirectly the way it's written that Cain and Abel were twins. It doesn't change the story, it doesn't change what we're going to talk about, but, but I found that kind of interesting um, in that, and the reason I found it a little bit interesting, and, and to me possibly um, important, is that if they were twins, kind of like Esau and Jacob, if Cain and Abel were twins, they grew up together. They didn't grow up at different times. There was not a period of time between them. They grew up together, and as they grew up together, they became the men that they were as they grew up at the same time. So in other words, if they were twins, it's not that Cain had a different experience at a different time. They, they were birthed at the same time and they grew up together. But what we see is the stark difference in their lives. And the stark difference in their relationship with God. The other thing I want to show you is, let's just continue reading in verse 3. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain... So we go from verses 1 and 2, their birth. Then in the process of time, they're old enough to bring an offering to the Lord. So we've, we've now skipped some years because they obviously, these are either adolescent young men or they're adult men. And it came to pass in the process of time that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. <clears throat> Now, what's interesting is, if you go to Leviticus, I don't have this, you don't have to go there, you can just make a note. Levit Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1, talks of an offering, it's, it's a peace offering, it's, um, it's not a peace offering, it's, a, it, it's um, an offering, that it, an acknowledgement offering, and it acknowledges, it's an offering to worship God, and it's called, in Leviticus 2 here, <clears throat> It's reference, it says the same thing, that they brought the fruit of the ground. Let me just read that to you real quick. I think it's Leviticus 2.1. Yes, if anyone brings a grain offering to the Lord. So it's called a grain offering, and this grain offering was the fruit of the ground. What was that? It was, could have been wheat, could have been barley, could have been anything. And if you read Leviticus 2 there, you'll see that um, you could bring it in different forms. 
But what's interesting about the grain offering, the grain offering is not a sin offering. It's an offering of worship. But that offering does not acknowledge sin. Why is that important? Well, I think it's very important. So Cain brought the fruit of the ground. He brought a grain offering to the Lord. Abel, I want you to notice, I don't know what translation you're using, but it's in the original text. Verse 4 says, Abel also brought. Now, that also doesn't mean Abel also came to bring an offering like his brother Cain did. It says, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock. Here again, in the text, it seems to indicate, now remember when I told you when we read Hebrews 11.4, and it talks about the gifts Abel brought, not the gift, but the gifts, plural. This word also seems to indicate that Abel also brought the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought a grain offering, but it doesn't mention Abel's grain offering other than he also, the also references that, but what it mentions by name is that the also included with the grain offering, he brought a lamb. Abel also brought of the first fruit, the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat. So Abel brings a slaughtered lamb, a sacrificed lamb. In addition to, it seems to indicate in the text, a grain offering. So I want you to note that. Let's see, what else do I want you to note? Those were... Those were probably the two main things. And then we'll talk about maybe another when we get toward the end of the chapter. Now, the reason I wanted to point out those two specific things, that it's very likely that Cain and Abel were twins, but more importantly, to understand the difference between their offerings. If we just read this at first glance, Cain brings the fruit of the ground to the Lord, Abel brings a lamb, God rejects Cain's offering, but he accepts Abel's offering. And here's the way I always thought of this. It takes a lot more work to to, uh, plant a garden and produce a garden than it does to go out there and find a good-looking lamb and slit its throat and bring it, even if you have to dress it out. And to many people, it seems... but to question their mind, it seems unfair that God would reject Cain's offering and accept Abel's offering because it seems like they both came to the Lord in an act of worship. And no doubt that they did because the grain offering, the fruit of the earth, bringing, the, bringing an offering to the Lord was an act of worship. So Cain and Abel were both acknowledging the Lord. But, but why did God reject Cain's offering and accept Abel's offering? <clears throat> so here's the gospel application. Because this is our point in going through the book of Genesis. The gospel, remember, doesn't begin at Matthew 1.1. The gospel begins with, in the beginning, God created. And the gospel is pictured for us, written graphically for us throughout the scripture, if we will have eyes to see it. 
So when the Bible says that Jesus took his disciples aside after the resurrection, and going through all the scripture, he taught them how the scripture revealed him. He began in Genesis and taught his disciples how Genesis pointed to the coming Messiah, the Christ. And so this is, when I say gospel application, this is what I mean. How does this reveal to us Christ? How does this teach us about Christ? How does this teach us and make known to us the gospel? So here's the gospel application. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of grain, acknowledging God and even worshiping God, but he did not acknowledge his own sin. Abel brought to the Lord an offering to acknowledge and worship the Lord, but he also brought the life of another, a sacrificed lamb that acknowledged his sin and his inability to atone for his sin. Abel's offering of a lamb pointed to Christ, God's perfect lamb. Cain's offering of the fruit of the ground acknowledged God in worship, but it did not acknowledge his own sin or his own inability and need for atonement of sin. A lot of people come to church week in and week out, and they acknowledge God and they worship God. That's what Cain did. He acknowledged God and he worshiped God. But what Cain did not do, that Abel did, is that when they both came to worship, Abel acknowledged his sinfulness and his need for a Savior. Cain did not. Cain acknowledged God and said, here I am, God, to worship you. I acknowledge you. Abel did the very same thing, but Abel also brought the life of another. He brought a lamb that that spoke of the need for atonement. Because what does the Bible teach us? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So what did God do in the very beginning? We looked at this. Adam and Eve fall. They cover themselves with fig leaves. God says, "Mm -mm, that's not going to cut it. There has to be shedding of blood. You have sinned, and the only thing that can bring remission of sin is the shedding of blood. And God shed the blood of animals and made tunics of skin and covered their sinfulness with the skin of animals. And those skins spoke of the shedding of blood for the atonement, the remission of sin. Cain comes and he acknowledges God in worship, but he does not acknowledge his sin. And God did not respect his offering. Because though Cain did acknowledge God, Cain did not acknowledge his own need for God. It's not good enough to just worship God and say, here I am, God, I'm paying my dues. Why are we worshiping God? Why are we able to worship God? Not because we have anything to offer God. Our worship of God is a should be not what we're giving to God, but what an acknowledgement of what God has given to us. What has God given to us? God has given his grace and his mercy to us. Those tunics that covered Adam and Eve spoke of the grace and the mercy of God because God did not take their skin. God took the skin of an animal and covered their sinfulness. 
When we come before the Lord in worship, we're not just acknowledging, here I am, God, just want to let you know I haven't forgot who you are. You're the big guy. No, we come before the Lord and we, yes, we acknowledge who he is, but in acknowledging who, is, who he is, we must understand who we are. We are fallen and we are in desperate need of his grace and his mercy. <clears throat> and when we come into this place and we sing the songs that speak of the Lamb of God, that speak of the mercy of God, that speak of the grace of God, that speak of the blood of Christ and the cross of Christ, when we sing those songs, when we read the scriptures, when we meditate on these things, when we speak these things forth from the fruit of our lips, we do it with thankfulness because we are acknowledging our need for God. We're acknowledging that he has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. See, that's what Abel was doing. Abel was acknowledging what God had done for him that he could not do for himself. And the only way Abel could do that was to bring a lamb to the Lord, which signified the sacrifice of the life of another. Jesus, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed for us so that we could put our hope and our trust in the life of another, the life of someone besides ourselves, because we cannot atone for our own sin. <clears throat> Both lives, Cain and Abel's life, were marked by blood. For Abel, it spoke of life, though he was the one murdered. For Cain, the blood spoke of death and certain judgment. It is the same today. The blood of Christ speaks either life or death. It speaks either justification or judgment to all who hear. The question is, which is it for you? Does the blood of Christ speak justification or does it speak judgment to you because every time the blood is preached every time the gospel is preached the message either brings justification or it brings judgment and this is exactly what we see in this account here God says to Cain the blood of your brother cries out from the ground Hebrews indicates that the blood still cries out from the ground But the only difference is now there is a greater blood. There is a blood more powerful than the blood of Abel crying out. It is the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ cries out. Do you hear its cry? God the Father does. And when we declare that the blood is crying out, when we declare the message that the blood speaks to us, For those hearing that message that we call the gospel, it is either bringing justification or it is bringing judgment. Because we're either going to accept the gospel and be justified or we are going to reject the gospel and we shall be judged. So now let's get to our question today. And our question is this, what marks your life? So if you notice in verse 15, It says that 
the Lord set a mark on Cain. So Cain was marked by God, but his life was already marked in many ways. Now, why did God mark Cain? Well, the Bible says God marked Cain because Cain was afraid that because of who he was, because of what he had done, unless you think there was no one else in the earth, like, well, who's he afraid of? The genealogies in the Bible, you need to understand this about the Scripture. The Scripture does not record every birth in human history. You, you already knew that, right? Because your birth's not recorded in there. Well, not directly anyways, right? Well, the Bible does not even record every birth by the patriarchs or by... It doesn't record every, it doesn't record every birth of Adam and Eve. In other words, every child Adam and Eve have is not, was not recorded in the Bible. Now, I can't go through, I don't have time, and this is not the point of my message, but if you actually calculated when Seth was born, we know the Bible says in chapter 5, Adam was 130 years old, I think, when Seth was born. Who was Seth? He's the son born to replace Abel, who was murdered. Cain is banished. Now, Adam and Eve have another son, Seth. It seems to indicate who was Cain afraid of? Obviously, there were other brothers and other sisters and other people. And so Cain is gone. And God puts a mark on his life because Cain was afraid that someone would come and take vengeance because he had killed Abel. And what does God say? Verse 15. Here's another important little note that I didn't mention a while ago, but it's, it's a good note for us. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever, he, God is, in a sense, protecting Cain, the guilty one, this murderer. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. I mean, I don't know about you, but in my humanness, I would say, if somebody killed him, then good for them. He deserves to die. He killed his brother. The guy was innocent. He shed innocent blood. Why are we worried about whether someone's going to kill Cain or not? But yet God says, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be extracted from them sevenfold. In other words, don't kill Cain. And God put a mark on Cain so that Cain's life would be protected. Did that mean Cain was not guilty? No. Well, how do we understand this? We understand this based on Deuteronomy 32, 35 that says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Could Cain expect judgment? Yes. How do we know who is Cain? We're going to see a little bit later that the Bible says that he was of the wicked one. When it seems like, this is what the Bible teaches us, even in the Psalms, it says don't look at the wicked and say, it seems like, because I've heard people say this, and listen, the writers of Scripture said the same things. It seems like the wicked just prosper all the time. It seems like you got drug cartel guys that are, you know, you watch these shows and it's like, man, they're rich, they're 
laundering their money and all kinds of legitimate businesses and all kinds of things. They have more money than they know what to do with. How come the wicked seem to prosper? How come the wicked seem to live longer than the righteous? Why are the righteous taken and the wicked remain? Those are all things that I've heard people say and people have asked me. But the Bible asks the very same questions. In the psalm, it asks that very same question. And here's God's response. Don't worry about the wicked. Because here's, here's the, uh, the modern-day translation of what God says about the wicked. Don't worry about the wicked. The wicked are going to get theirs. That's exactly what God says. Why? Because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So Cain was marked already in many ways. God doesn't physically mark us, but our life is marked in many ways. You don't have a physical mark on your life, but your life is marked in very many ways. So again, here's the question, what marks your life? Now I want to talk to you about three things that we see here in the Scripture. In this story of Cain and Abel, we see that Your relationship with God marks your life. That's the first one. We see that your relationship with your brother, spiritually speaking, or your sister, your relationship with your brother marks your life. And the third thing is this, your relationship with others marks your life. So let's talk about these three Let's talk about your relationship with God that marks your life. Your relationship with God is pictured by your worship. Now, I'm not saying whether you dance or raise your hands. I mean, people can express worship differently. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more expressive than some people in worship. You know, so if, you know, I, sometimes I find it hard to not be moving when I'm worshiping. And I'm, you know, I, I'd like to raise my hands and you know, some people don't, and that's okay. That's not what I'm talking about when I say your worship um, pictures your relationship with God. We all worship. Do you guys realize that? Every human being on the face of the earth worships something or someone. The question is, what is it that you're worshiping? What or who is the object of your worship? For some people, it's their job, their careers. For some people, it's money. For some people, it's relationships. Uh, Have you ever known anyone that, that, that is in a codependent relationship? That's a that's a clinical term. Oh, they're codependent. Well, what that really means is they've made an idol out of somebody, and that relationship is what they worship. The problem is the relationship they're worshiping is not God. <laughs> it's with another human being. Now, I love my wife with all my heart, even though she doesn't believe that I do that all the time because I don't always act like that, you know, because sometimes she has to tell me multiple times to remember to do things, you know. And for her, it's like, don't tell me you love me. Show me you love me. Like if I take out the trash without her asking that communicates that I love her. When she's got to ask me 25 times and I still forget, I can tell her I love her 57 times. 
and it doesn't mean anything because the 25 times she had to ask me to take out the trash and I, I, I just, you know, didn't do it. Not because I don't love her, but just because I can't even say because I'm a man, you know, because that's, that's not an excuse either, right? It's just not an excuse, guys. But man, you know, when you're able to do those things without her asking, it's like, it's like saying, I love you. It just speaks love. So, we should love one another. But the object of our worship is God. So we all worship. The question is, what is it that we are worshiping? Who is it that we are worshiping? So worship will mark your life. You see the worship of Cain and the worship of Abel marked their lives. I mean, it marked their lives eternally. Cain's worship marked his life eternally, and Abel's worship marked his life eternally. Their lives went in very different directions. They had very different outcomes in their life. Abel had a very short life. Cain had a very long life. One was righteous, the Bible says, and the other was wicked. The righteous one died young, the wicked one lived old, and actually God put a mark on him and protected him so that no one would kill him. But their worship marked their lives. How you acknowledge God, that's your worship, will mark your life. How you acknowledge your sin, that's your repentance will mark your life. Abel acknowledged his sinfulness before God and brought the life of another in sacrifice and worship to the Lord. Cain brought the fruit of the ground. He brought a grain offering. He acknowledged God, but he did not acknowledge his sin. And even later, when God says, where is your brother Abel? His response to God was, am I my brother's keeper? Which right there showed us something about Cain's attitude toward his sinfulness. There was no repentance in Cain. The only remorse that we see in Cain was the remorse that life was now going to be hard for him. That life was now going to be dangerous for him. That was the remorse that we see in Cain. There was no remorse that he killed his brother. More importantly, there was no remorse that he sinned against God. So how you acknowledge your sin, your repentance marks your life. When we come in worship of God, repentance should mark our life. An acknowledgement of our sinfulness should mark our life. How you acknowledge His grace, or we could say it like this, your humility marks your life. Because when we have a revelation of God's grace, it does not make us proud. It does not give us a license to sin. The greater and the deeper revelation we have of God's grace brings a greater and a deeper sense of humility to the child of God. Because what magnifies God's grace is the ability for me to see how magnified my sinfulness is in the eyes of God. What level of sinfulness is God content with? The answer is no level. 
Yet we live our lives thinking that God's okay with some sin. Oh, well, I know there's the big sins, you know. We've got those big sins. We don't want to do that. But, you know, the little things, God doesn't sweat the little things. No. Actually, when it comes to sin, he sweats the little things. So the standard that God gives us throughout the Scripture is absolute, total, and complete perfection and holiness. God says, this is my standard. Can you live up to it? The answer to that question is no, I can't live up to it. So Cain brings his best offering to the Lord, but he does not acknowledge his sinfulness. Abel brings his best offering to the Lord, but he knows his best is not good enough, and he brings the sacrificed lamb that speaks of the life of another that he is looking to and trusting in. And he acknowledges his sinfulness before God, and God accepts his sacrifice, his offering. Not because his offering could atone for his sin, not because his offering did anything other than acknowledge who God was and at the same time acknowledge who he is. That offering of Abel acknowledged who God was and it acknowledged at the very same time who Abel was. Abel says, God, you are holy. I am sinful. Have mercy on me. He came humbly before God. In humility, he comes. How you acknowledge God's grace marks your life. Your humility will mark your life. How you acknowledge God's love will mark your life. And your love for God, 1 John 4.19 says we love God and we know this, that we love God because God first loved us. So when Acknowledging God's love, how do we do that? We acknowledge that by returning that love to God from a heart of thankfulness. So your love for God, but also your love for your brother marks your life. It wasn't good enough that Cain brought his offering in in acknowledgement of God, in worship of God. Because right after that, he turns around and he murders his brother And the murder of his brother betrayed the reality of what was in his heart. There was no love for God in his heart, and there was certainly no love for his brother in his heart. So our worship will mark our life. And our worship is pictured, or our relationship with God is pictured by our worship. It's pictured by our repentance, by our humility, by our love. Those are all aspects, part of our worship. The second thing is this. Your relationship with your brother marks your life. Your relationship with God will ultimately determine your relationship with your brother, with your sister. We cannot separate love and worship. For what we love, listen, what we love most is ultimately what we worship most deeply. There are people that absolutely go insane over sports. Hey, I've enjoyed watching the Spurs. I don't watch basketball. I don't follow basketball until we get to the playoffs. And I heard the last three minutes of that game last night on the radio, and I'm telling you what, it was exciting. But I'm telling you what, I know some people who absolutely make their team their idol. Now, you know, let's not pick on sports fans because we can pick on anybody. 
What you love the most is what you will ultimately worship the most deeply. So love will mark your life. Let's go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. In the back of your Bible, just before you get to the book of Revelation, you'll find 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, let's begin reading in verse 11. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Look, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So your love of God will determine your love of your brother. Now, while you're in 1 John, let's turn over another page to the fourth chapter of 1 John, and let's read 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, the last two verses of the chapter. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. So how you love your brother will determine how you love God. So do you get that? Your love of God will determine how you love your brother. And how you love, a bro- how you love your brother will determine how you love God. Because the Bible says we can't say that we love God and hate our brother. If we do that, the Bible says the love of the Father is not in us. So your relationship with your brother marks your life. Then we get back to Genesis chapter 4. And from verse 13 to verse 16, we see Cain has received the pronouncement of his judgment, he's been cast out. God says, look at this in verse in verse 12, he says, A fugitive and a vagabond you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that someone who finds me will kill me. Cain did not have any doubt that there would be people who wanted to end his life. Why do you think that is? There had to be something. There was something about Cain's life, or we could say it like this. There was something about his reputation that was going to affect his relationship with others. So God puts a mark on him and, and pronounces that anyone that kills him, they're going to, uh, he'll be avenged seven times. 
So your relationship with God marked your life. Your relationship with your brother marked your life. And we see here when God cast Cain away and he goes out to wander the earth, your relationship with others marked your life. What do I mean by that? Your relationship with others in the world is important to your witness in the world. We do not live to please or to appease the world, but we live to give glory and a witness to Christ in this world. What is reputed to mark your life, the glory of God or the shame of men? Now that's a question. What, what is reputed to mark your life? Is it the glory of God or is it the shame of men? Your reputation is important in relation to your witness of God's glory. So your reputation will mark your life. Proverb 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Your reputation should be for the glory of God. Your reputation should not be for yourself. Who is Cain worried about? When he's fretting over what's going to happen to him, he was not worried about the glory of God. He, he could care less for God. He was worried about himself. He was worried about his reputation because he was worried about himself. And so you see this in, in people's lives. They work very hard to maintain a good reputation, but it's not for the glory of God necessarily. It's really for themselves. Your reputation should be for the glory of God. Let's go to, back to the New Testament. We were in 1 John. Let's go to 1 Peter now. Peter actually has quite a lot to say about this. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. So 1 Peter is right before 2 Peter, which is right before 1 John. It's back in the back of your Bible near the book of Revelation, just a few books before that. 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's look at verse 20. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. In other words, who cares if you endure your punishment patiently if you deserve to be punished? If you, you know, it's like, you know, if you hang around... Uh, People, you know, law enforcement, they'll say, do the crime, do the time. Listen, if you do the time patiently, there's no com commendation there because you did the crime. So, yeah, you need to do the time and you should do it patiently. But Peter says, what is commendable is when you do good and you suffer if you take it patiently. This is commendable before God. Let's go over to chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. 1 Peter 3, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason 
a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now, Proverbs says a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, but not at the expense of the glory of God. So it doesn't matter if the world, and what I'm saying is your reputation in terms of how the world looks at you doesn't matter as long as your life is giving glory to God. If they call you crazy, if they call you a fanatic, if they think you've gone off the deep end because you love Jesus too much, what are you going to do about that? If they break in those doors and they say, stop preaching the gospel, we command you right now in the name of the law of this land, stop preaching the gospel, and we refuse to stop preaching the gospel, and they carry us off as criminals, and now we have the reputation of a criminal, have we sinned against God? No, we have not. As a matter of fact, our reputation, uh, we've, just, we've just enhanced our reputation for the glory of God. Not that we should be out trying to do that, But these believers that Peter's writing to, their names were being defamed for the glory of God because they were Christian. Abel's name was defamed because of his worship of God to the point that his brother killed him. Cain's name was defamed for an unrighteous reason. Abel's name was defamed by his brother for a righteous reason, which would you rather have? If your name's going to be defamed, let it be defamed for the sake of righteousness and the glory of God. So your relationship, I think there's one more verse, uh, verse four, chapter 4, verse six, 14 through 16. Peter writes, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. On their part, he has blasphemed, Oh, I'm sorry. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody, meddling in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So your relationship with God should determine your reputation. I'm going to say that again. Your relationship with God should determine your reputation. In Christ, our reputation is washed by the blood of the Lamb. I'm going to read you one more scripture from 1 John, then we're closing. 1 John 1, 7, our reputation is washed by the blood of the Lamb. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with Him, with one another. And the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. In Christ, our reputation is washed by the blood of the Lamb. 
Everybody has a past. It doesn't matter what your past reputation is. Even if you were a murderer, there is forgiveness. Because Jesus says we've all committed murder in our heart. When we've called our brother a fool or hated our brother. That's that standard that God has set that is so high that humans cannot attain to it. There was only one man who could ever attain to the standard God set. That is the man, Christ Jesus. And he has attained to it and he keeps that law perfectly throughout eternity. And so we keep it in him. Now here's my challenge to you. Each of our lives are marked by something or someone. In Genesis 4.15, we see that God marked Cain, who was of the wicked one. In Revelation 7.3, we see that God is sealing His servants with a seal on their foreheads. The Bible declares that we, the children of God, have been sealed by God with His Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter. 1 verses 21 and 22 talk about being sealed by the Spirit. Ephesians 1 verses 11 through 14 talk about us being sealed by the Spirit of God. Ephesians 4 verses 29 through 30 speak of us being sealed by the Spirit of God. What is the seal that God has placed upon us? It is His Spirit. We are marked by His Spirit. Does your life bear that mark? Is the fruit of the Spirit the mark of your life? What marks your life? That's the question and that's the challenge before us. If the world had to write your epitaph, you know what that is? They had to write a story of your life. What would that story be? I had to do a funeral yesterday. Well, I didn't have to, but I, I, I chose to. I didn't know the gentleman. If someone who didn't know you very well or someone who did know you very well actually is more important, what would be the epitaph? What would be the story of your life? How would they describe your life? What would mark your life? What would be the highlights they might write down that would mark and describe who you are? Others wrote their memory of you. What would it be? So consider what, what is the thing, the things that mark your life. If it is not the glory of God and the witness of Christ, I challenge you to cry out to God and to implore Him to change you and to transform you. That your life would be marked for His glory. If your life is not marked by the glory of God, cry out to Him. Because if you will cry out to God and ask God to change you and to transform you, I promise you that He will do that. I'm not saying it will always be a pleasant experience. 
But don't let having a pleasant life, that's what Caleb was talking about during communion, don't let having a pleasant life be your goal. Let a life that glorifies God and bears witness to Christ, let that be your goal. Strive for that. Pray that God would give you that life for His glory. Amen? What marks your life? Let's all stand. I'm going to pray a closing prayer. I'm going to pray over the food. It's ready for you next door. We have Minnesota hot dish. I'm sure there's some bars there. I just like to say that. When I went to Minnesota, they talked a lot about bars. So we'll pray for the food. But as I pray, I just want you to consider this question before us today. What marks your life? Father in heaven, Our prayer today is that you would mark our life and that our life would be marked for your glory and that our life would be marked as a witness to Christ. That if the world had to write our epitaph, Lord, if those that knew us, whether casually or the most intimately, and they had to write an epitaph of our life, God, that that it would be a story marked by the glory of God, marked by a desire that Christ would be seen and Christ would be known, that the seal of the Spirit that's been given to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ would mark us and it would reveal the life of Christ in us. Lord, we pray that the church would desire that above anything, above health, above wealth, above prosperity, above so many things that she seems to be chasing after and naming and proclaiming. When God, what you desire most is that your children, that your bride, the church, that her life would be marked for the glory of God. Her life would be marked as a witness of Christ. Even if it means we suffer persecution. Even if it means that the world does not hold us in very high esteem. Lord, are we held in your esteem? Are we known in Christ? Is our passion and our goal and our desire and our worship pointed to making Christ known? And God glorified. I pray, God, that you would change our hearts and change our minds and conform us to that image of your Son because that is what Jesus did when he walked the earth. He walked the earth and he gave glory to his Father. And his life became a reflection of the Father. Would that our lives become a reflection of Christ and so reflect the Father. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.